That reminds me of the tagline to the Billy Graham radio program, Good News All the Time. And that is how our Lord approaches the world. That's a good thing because November 1st through the 4th, we are going to host a Harvest Crusade with Ronnie Hill. Dr. Ronnie Hill, a dear friend of mine, been an evangelist for more than 20 years, traveling vocationally, will be with us November 1st, Sunday morning through Wednesday evening. We will have pre-service meetings in every, uh, every uh, day and before every worship service, and then we will have a worship service. Our pre-service meeting, so to speak, Sunday morning is our Sunday school hour where every Sunday school class will set a contact goal and seek to reach it. And then we'll do morning worship. Then Sunday evening, there'll be a student event at 6 and then worship at 7. In the evenings, the pre-service meetings are at 6 and worship at 7. Uh, Monday evening, we'll have a children's pizza blast. We do that because pizza is anointed by God. <laughs> and then at 7 o'clock, uh, I'm asking our men to bust the building in honor of Building B. Uh, we used to call this Pack-a-Pew. I'm calling it Building Buster Night. And our men will do that 7 o'clock Monday evening. Tuesday at 6, we'll have a uh, student pizza detonation to distinguish it from the children's pizza blast at 6. And then at 7, the ladies will bust the building. We're, again, we're doing this all in honor of Building B. Wednesday evening, adult steak night. We'll have tickets on sale to you. Uh, for $3 a piece, I'm going to buy at least 20 I may buy 30 to uh, give away to friends, uh, to cover my family and friends. And I am going to hand this to them and say, I bought you a steak dinner. I want you here Wednesday night at 6 o'clock. We'll do that in the, I believe it, well, I'm not sure where we'll do it, to be honest with you. But we'll tell you at least two or three minutes before the event. Then 7 o'clock, Wednesday evening, we uh, want to invite your family to come. If you've got family within 240 miles, get them here. I expect most of the services to end around 8 o'clock in the evening, give or take a few minutes, and um, uh, they'll be able to be home by midnight or sooner. It's important. I'm not joking. It's important to be here. I will say to you, this is so important to rearrange your schedule around. Do so if you can because it's not likely that where you're going during that week is going to win anyone to Jesus. This is going to be strictly intentionally focused on those who do not know Christ as Savior. We're going to fill the place up, seek people to come to Jesus Christ. And if you will do what I'm asking you to do, if you'll support our leadership, you will see professions of faith. Some of them will be your friends. And I want to see God do a great work in the lives of those that you're praying for. You're praying, of course, for 15 every day, aren't you? Uh, we've been focusing on that for 20, uh, 20 uh, months. Well, some of us are. Some of you look like that's the first time you've heard that. Make a list of 15 people who worry you spiritually and begin to pray for them. And then the week before, we will have prayer meetings at 8.30 every morning, uh, beginning Monday through Friday, October 26th through the 30th. Now, your effectiveness at sharing the good news of Christ this month in pre preparation for November 1st through the 4th, will depend in large part on your confidence in the Word of God. Lately, some angry atheists and secularists have attacked us for our faith and trust in the Bible. They've ignited new attacks by claiming that we cherry-pick the Scripture when it comes to the commandments. They will say something like, 
uh, you focus on the commandments that condemn sexual sin, especially homosexuality, but there's some others you're completely ignoring. And with that in mind, I want to address those head on. In Leviticus 18 and 19, if you'll look there with me. In fact, we'll look at it really first at Leviticus chapter 11. And they accuse us of cherry picking. The verse that we um, have used and contemplated in regards to homosexual behavior is Leviticus 18.22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination, the scripture says. And they will point oftentimes to several verses in Leviticus. I can't cover them all today. I'll just cover two. But they will point to Leviticus 11.9 through 12 and say, why don't you obey this? These you may eat of all that are in the water. Whatever in the water has fins and scales, whether in the seas of the rivers, that you may eat. But in all the seas of the rivers that do not have fins and scales, all that move in the water, or any living thing which is in the water, they are an abomination to you. They shall be an abomination to you. You shall not eat their flesh, but you shall regard the, even their carcasses as an abomination. Whatever in the water does not have fins or scales, that shall be an abomination to you. And they'll say, see, right there. You can't eat anything out of the water unless it has uh, fins or scales. And therefore, it's an abomination for you to eat shrimp or catfish. You see, they pick this verse and they use it as a clobber verse. And they got it. It's an argument clincher. And they uh, condemn us for not obeying that law. And most Christians, frankly, are left speechless when this comes up. Well, why in the world do you not obey that law, but you refer to this other law about sexual behavior? And uh, most Christians will go, well, um, uh, but, uh, uh, you know, that clock up there, that really is a fine piece of digital machinery. You know, and they'll try to change the subject uh, oftentimes. Well, here's my response. Number one, yes, you are correct. We pick and choose some laws to obey and ignore others in the book of Leviticus. That is true, but there's good reason to do it, beginning with Jesus Christ. And there's actually 2,000 years of developed thought as to why we do that. There is a rational reason. Number two, my response is, do you cherry pick which laws in Leviticus that you will obey, Mr. Critic? And I will usually point to Leviticus 19.11. You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. And I will ask the critic, do you disobey that? Now you're using these verses in chapter 11 to clobber me with, but do you obey these verses? Have you ever lied? Have you ever dealt falsely? Have you ever stolen anything? If you deny stealing, I say, are there any pens or paper clips at your work, uh, at your home, that are really from your work? You've taken something that doesn't belong to you. Have you paid for it? That's just an example. And so, really, quite frankly, uh, many people cherry pick, especially the critics. But do you have a reason as to why you do that with this and not the other? Well, we do have a rather developed, complex, sophisticated reason as to why there are some laws in Leviticus we implement today and why there are some laws that we don't. My third response is to share something like this message today. No Christian should ever shy away from the book of Leviticus or any place in the Word of God whether it happens to be the book of Leviticus or Deuteronomy or Genesis 1 and 2 or the book of Revelation. Do not shy away from it at all. Approach it head on. In fact, I would argue all Christians should love the book of Leviticus and so should the world. Well, why? Well, number one, Leviticus records the Lord's Word. 
Are you familiar with red-letter Bibles? I've got many red-letter Bibles. They are Bibles that record the words of Christ in red. And the narrative parts that don't record the word of Christ are in black. For example, over here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, I've got an awful lot of red letter because those are direct statements from Jesus Christ. I, I really don't like red letter Bibles. They seem to indicate that one part of the Bible is more inspired than another. Uh, those who do that don't mean to communicate that, but sometimes people can mistake it that way. I'd rather for it all to be red or all to be black in one color because I believe it's all inspired. But if we were to color code the book of Leviticus and take the direct statements of God in Leviticus and turn them red, nearly the entire book of Leviticus would be red. Nearly the entire book of Leviticus is given to direct statements from God himself. Uh, chapter 18 verse 1 is just one example. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. This happens 56 times in 27 chapters of Leviticus, more than twice per chapter. So almost all of Leviticus consists of direct statements from God Himself. That means the subject matter is especially intense to Him. And the subject matter, essentially in Leviticus, just to summarize, is how to approach God and meet with Him for forgiveness. And once you're forgiven, how to continue with Him. These subjects were so intense and so personal to God, he quotes nearly the entire book of Leviticus. But there's a second reason I love the book of Leviticus, and that is it sets up the New Testament. It sets up the New Testament. Now, many Christians are confused about the relationship between the Old Testament and New Testament and why in the world the Old Testament is so different from the New Testament. Well, let me illustrate it this way. Uh, think of a fruit tree. You have the seed, and it sprouts roots, and then it develops a trunk. Then eventually it develops branches, leaves, and fruit, if it's a healthy tree. The same is true for the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament happens to be the seed, the root, and the trunk. The New Testament develops beyond that, and that is, it, it, it happens to be the branches, the leaves, and the fruit. Now, without the seed, without the root, and without the trunk, you don't really have the opportunity for leaves and branches and fruit. The Old Testament is the root, the New Testament is the fruit. And that's a good way to describe the relationship. Or mathematics is another relationship. Early on in school, when we're younger and just developing academically, we learn addition and subtraction. As we grow, we learn multiplication and division. And then eventually, we run into nearly everyone's nightmare in the world, and that is algebra. And then geometry. And then higher forms mathematics, advanced mathematics. The same is true when you come to the Bible and the relationship between the Old Testament in New Testament. The Old Testament happens to be addition and subtraction, multiplication and division. The New Testament happens to be algebra, uh, trigonometry, calculus, and other higher forms of mathematics. Uh, another way of thinking about the relationship of the Old and New Testament is to think of it this way, in terms of a meal or a feast. The cooking takes place in the kitchen. The meal is served at the table. There's an awful lot of cooking, if I can put it that way, and recipe making and an awful lot of detail in the Old Testament that prepares the feast of the New Testament. And I think that's a good way to illustrate the relationship between the Old and the New Testament. Now, Leviticus <coughs> then sets up the New Testament. The New Testament quotes Leviticus a hundred times. 
And oftentimes these quotations are coming from the lips of Jesus himself. Leviticus 19.18 is a verse you know. You may not understand or may not recognize the reference. But it's a verse you know and you've probably quoted. In fact, it's quoted seven times in the New Testament alone. And that is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, Jesus said that is one way of two ways to summarize the entire Old Testament law. The first way is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus then sets up the elements of the gospel. Sin and sacrifice. And the book of Hebrews, especially chapters 9 and 10, elaborate on that. Leviticus then provides the background to sin and sacrifice and service for our sins. They offered sacrifices for those who had sinned. God forgave them and turned them into servants and renewed their service to Him. Well, that set up an image and a framework of thinking so that when Jesus Christ came, they would understand that what was happening in the Old Testament was the miniature or preview, and Christ happens to be the full package and happens to be the real thing. And that's what the book of Hebrews describes. In other words, God demands a blood sacrifice for our sins. Temporarily, the Old Testament sacrifices cover those of Israel. But when Jesus Christ came, Jesus Christ was God's own offering because He loved us. He offered an offering for us, not merely our offering that we could collect from our livestock and from our flocks, but God's own offering from His heart and next to His throne, His own Son. And Jesus Christ then bled and died. And whereas the Old Testament sacrifice would merely cover sin, Jesus Christ in His death would remove sin from before the sight of God. That's why Jesus only had to die once. He completely removed it from the sight of God. And now anyone who repents and places faith in Jesus Christ can be eternally, instantaneously, and forever saved and forgiven of sin. Bless His name. And so the Old Testament sets up all of that, and it does it because of the love of God. So Leviticus is chock full of assumptions about the love of God. In fact, Ms. Patterson said one time to ladies who'd experienced abortion, she said, you can never free yourself from the love of God. What good news, and we're made for it. So Leviticus records the Lord's Word. It sets up the New Testament. Then it distinguishes the nation of Israel. One of the large complaints today against Christians is that we can tell no difference between them and the rest of the world. And too often that's the case in how Christians spend, what sexual decisions that they make, how they order their priorities, how they deal with disappointment and conflict. Sometimes there's absolutely no difference between the Christian and the person outside of Christ. God did not want that problem to be true for Israel. He wanted to make them so different that they attracted attention to themselves and they would turn attention to their God. And so the word holy appears often in the book of Leviticus. In fact, 150 times the word holy appears there because God is holy and He wanted His people and their work to be holy. The word holy means to be distinct in a spiritual and moral way. And God did this, tried to promote holiness among His people with three kinds of laws. One law was the ceremonial law. It is temporary because it dealt with the ceremonies in the tabernacle and the temple to make them right with God. But when Jesus Christ came, Jesus Christ was the final sacrifice. And when He offered that sacrifice, 
the purpose of the Old Testament ceremonial law came to a close. It was completed. It had done its job. It had set the world up for the death of Christ, and it was over. The way we obey Old Testament ceremonial law today is to repent and place faith in Jesus Christ, and none of these laws was transferred to the New Testament. The second kind of law happens to be civil law. That organized Israel as a theocracy, not a democracy. They were not a democracy. They were a theocracy that God ruled directly. In fact, God's tabernacle was in the midst of the people and their camp, indicating that he was to be the center of all of life. And this civil law organized their life together, a desert people, a people that had been slaves. And so there's some rather intense and detailed laws and personal laws in the Old Testament. None of these civil laws was transferred to the New Testament. So the ceremonial law was temporary. The civil law was temporary. Neither of these was transferred to the New Testament. But there is a third kind of law, and that happens to be the moral law. It made society stable, and it especially protected the vulnerable. It protected the poor. It protected children. It protected women so that those that were in positions of power and authority could not abuse them. Kings and other rulers and elders in Israel could not arbitrarily change the law to their advantage. They had to go by the law of God, and none of the law of God ever made a provision for amendments by humans. It was firm, it was established, and it could not be changed because God had given it. All of the moral law reappears in the New Testament, and God expects the entire world to meet the standard of the moral law, and none of us has. Therefore, we need Jesus Christ. What's happened between the Old Testament and New Testament is that we have changed states. The laws of California are rather unique in some ways. California has some unique laws that are not shared by the other 49 states, for example. Because there's such a large motion picture industry there, there are a large number of laws in, on the code, on the books in California, that uh, rule and regulate the production and the sale of motion pictures and their distribution. Uh, we don't generally have those in other states. It's not an issue. But then there's a large celebrity culture in California as well. And there are laws in the books there that address the treatment of celebrities and even what happens if they end up in court with a marriage, with a divorce, or with a case of stalking. Uh, many of the states don't have laws like that for celebrities. Um, also in California, it is much easier for landowners to sue other private landowners than it is in other states of the Union. Well, I'm in Georgia, and I'm not subject to these laws in California because I'm here, I'm not there, I'm in a different state. As a New Testament Christian in the New Testament era then, I'm in a different state than what Israel was in. Israel had a set of laws that ordered their life there, and now on the other side of the cross and resurrection, the Bible teaches we are in a different state. So many of those laws I don't have to observe, but many of them I do. For example, just because I'm not in California, but I am in Georgia, does not mean I can murder someone. That law is true for every one of our states. And the same is true when it comes to the law of God. The civil law and the ceremonial law ended with the death and resurrection of Christ, but the moral law was made universal all over the earth, and God says, hear my voice, I am holy, 
You shall be holy as I'm holy. And he demands that of the entire world. Leviticus uh, offers us another reason to love the book of Leviticus, and that is Leviticus addresses former slaves. Some of you got the shock of your life when you went into boot camp. Do you remember? Oh, what a lovely and pleasant experience. It's all that you were expecting, was it not? Uh, some had the shock of their life then when they went into boot camp. It was very restrictive. It was ordered. It was what I would call persnickety. The bed had to be made in the right way. Every millimeter on the shoes had to be shined and polished. And oftentimes in boot camp, well, all the time, uh, recruits had to wear uh, the appropriate attire on the base, off the base, to home. It was restrictive. It was intense because what they're taking is oftentimes unaware, immature, young, undisciplined American citizens and trying to make them soldiers or sailors or airmen or marines that can be relied upon in a time of conflict. Ladies and gentlemen, Israel had come out of four centuries of slavery. They had conformed to Egypt. And God had selected and called them to be the people to bring the Messiah into the world. But they were undisciplined. They were pagan in some ways. They had mixed Egyptian religion with some of their own. And they needed an intense boot camp. And God put them through it with the book of Leviticus, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Genesis. Is precisely what he did. So these are laws that were suitable for slaves who were not fit and prepared to serve God. And beloved, it worked. Because the Jewish nation brought Jesus Christ to the world. So with the book of Leviticus and the other laws of the Old Testament, God started where they were, worked with them incrementally to grow them, and made them ready to bring Jesus into the world. Thank God for the book of Leviticus. Then the book of Leviticus guides similar cultures. Uh, there are tribes in Africa, in fact, when they come to Christ, they go through the book of Leviticus with new converts. Because some of the issues that these new converts are dealing with are some of the similar issues, same issues, that were dealt with in the book of Leviticus. Now, I can hear some cranky person say, Oh, that's because those Africans are primitive, and they are backwards. And they are ignorant. In fact, a few years ago, when the gay marriage and gay ordination issue erupted in the Church of England, bishops, Anglican bishops from Africa, visited with the uh, archbishop and other bishops in England, and they tried to work out their differences. The African bishops were insisting on obeying the Scripture as it teaches, not to ordain homosexuals and not to marry homosexuals in the Anglican church. American bishops opposed it. Some of them did, not all. And many uh, English, uh, British bishops opposed the influence of the African English bishops. In fact, in frustration, one British bishop just finally yelled, yelled at an African bishop and said, why don't you just go back to the jungle from where you came? Let me ask you something. What did that debate reveal about some of the Western Anglo bishops and their feelings towards Africans? Ladies and gentlemen, you and I would never get away with such a statement, nor should we. But I want to say to you, 
I don't think African bishops are ignorant, backwards, or primitive. I think they're faithful to the Word of God. Leviticus then guides similar cultures. There's a sixth reason to love Leviticus, and that is Leviticus includes laws with which we all agree. Chapter 18, verse 6. Chapter 18, verse number 6. None of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin to him to uncover his nakedness. That is a euphemism for sexual relations. I am the Lord. The nakedness of your father, the nakedness of your mother, you shall not uncover. She's your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. The nakedness of your father's wife, you shall not uncover. It is your father's nakedness. The nakedness of your sister, the daughter of your father, the daughter of your mother, whether born or at home or elsewhere, their nakedness you shall not uncover. I don't know anyone here that disagrees with that. Chapter 18, verse 21. And you shall not let any of your descendants, especially infants, pass through the fire to Molech. Molech was a large stone god, idol, that had arms out like so. And those who sacrificed their children with Molech would build a fire underneath that god, and they would drop their children into the arms of Molech and allow that child to be burned to death as a sacrifice to Molech. Is there anyone here that wants to do away with that law? No. Chapter 19, verse 13. You might disagree with some of the laws in Leviticus, but I'm sure you don't disagree with this one. In fact, you want your employer to observe this. You shall not cheat your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. That was the pay period. You pay people by the day. And so essentially, you keep your pay period, and you uphold it. And if you promise to have a pay period, you deliver on it. All the critics of Leviticus I've ever known certainly hope that their employer uh, goes by that. Now let me ask you a question. Do you want to live in a world where we Christians do pick and choose from Leviticus with good reason why we obey some laws and uh, set aside others? Or do you want to live in a world where anything goes? Let me put it this way. Do you want your neighbor to obey the Scripture and act like a Christian? Or do you want your neighbor to believe there is no such thing as right and wrong, true and false? What do you want your spouse to do? Do you want your spouse to believe anything goes, I can do anything I want to, no matter what wedding vow I have made? Or do you want your spouse to go by the relevant laws in the book of Leviticus? Do you want us to keep the moral law but set aside the civic and the ceremonial? Or do you want us, us to abandon everything? Friends, I need to give you some bad news, and we tried to warn the world about this before it happened. But already... The legal reasoning and historical reasoning behind approving gay marriage and approving gay sexual behavior has hit the courts. Jerry Nielsen, New South Wales judge in Australia, has argued that because we no longer consider homosexual behavior a taboo, it's no longer criminal, it's no longer considered unnatural, at least by the court, we should no longer have that view of pedophilia at all. We tried to tell you that this was coming, but some were too busy claiming we were bigots to listen. In other words, the trajectory the Supreme Court decision has placed us on has brought us to this place. Now, I know you didn't want that. That's not what you anticipated. But life is more than just what is in the front of your face. 
Life has trajectories or slippery slopes that we've got to consider. We Christians have been watching this for 2,000 years, generally trying to be historically aware, and this is where these laws have brought us. There's another reason to love the book of Leviticus, and that happens to be Leviticus makes sense. When studied in context, Leviticus makes sense. Uh, Chapter 18, verse 3 is the background to many of these laws. In fact, chapter 18 through the end of Leviticus begins a section where God seeks to apply the first 17 chapters to the life of Israel. The first 17 chapters is how they get right with God. The chapter 18 to 27 is how they walk in fellowship with God. And chapter 18, verse 3 really sets up the application of the law. According to the doings of the land of Egypt, where you dwelt, you shall not do. And according to the doings of the land land of Cana, where I'm bringing you, you shall not do. Nor shall you walk in their ordinances. In other words, you had a very deceptive and seductive culture in Egypt. You've got one in Cana. I need you to follow these laws if you're going to be ready to bring the Messiah into the world. Now, there are two laws in particular I want to address. One we've already looked at in Leviticus 11 about shellfish. And then we'll look at Leviticus 18.19. Let's talk about shellfish for a moment. God prohibited the eating of anything from the waters without fins and without scales. We don't believe that's applicable to today. In fact, Mark chapter 7, Jesus declared all foods clean. It was no longer necessary to observe that. But let me ask you something. Why would God prohibit these former slaves in a desert traveling by foot to land, on land from eating shellfish? Well, where are they? They are in a desert. What are they? Well, they were slaves. Who's got money for shrimp in a location like this? Who's got the money for that? And then, is it possible, with the lack of water and precious few water supplies, that perhaps some of them could develop an iodine intolerance or allergy to it? I have friends even today that started off their life eating shrimp and they hit the age of 30 or 40 where many things fall apart and they developed an iodine allergy and today cannot eat shrimp. Well, you've got a desert people with precious few water resources and that might, might be a consideration. You ask microbiologists or marine biologists about shrimp and you'll learn that they are bottom feeders and so they eat whatever is at the bottom, even the fecal matter that collects in the water and drops to the bottom. And so they are full of parasites, and they're full of nasty, awful garbage. And so you harvest those. You don't have modern processes for cleaning them. What could happen to the entire camp of Israel if they all gorge on shrimp? So without modern processing, shrimp happens to be a uh, challenge, perhaps a challenge, to the health and well-being of the Israelites. In fact, we have evidence to indicate that even the Romans and the Egyptians avoided eating shrimp. Now, because of the context in chapter 18, verse 3, I realize it's not entirely spelled out, but the context is set here in the book of Leviticus. And that is, God wants them to be different, especially spiritually and religiously, from the culture around them. I suspect that probably shrimp was used in pagan worship ceremonies, or at least some of the feasts that took place, and the Lord did not want them tempted by that and tempted to challenge their health. Now, chapter 18, verse 19 speaks of menstruation, and this is one that the critics of the Scripture have a field day with. It's somewhat delicate to talk about. I want to be as delicate as I can, but 
chapter 18, verse 19. Also, you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness as long as she is in her customary impurity. That's a euphemistic way of talking about the monthly period that a woman has. Now, I want you to imagine this. You've got this poor woman who has got all of these children that on their best day are gremlins. She wonders why she didn't eat them when they were young. They're traveling in the desert. It's hot. It's sweaty. That time of the month has come. She has to engage in all of the processing of their food. She has to grind the meal. She has to churn the butter. She has to press olives for oil during this time. She is cramping. The sun goes down. She gets in the tent. And her husband says, hey, baby. My Old Testament professor, Mark Rooker, has written a book on Leviticus. He says, the sacredness of blood in Leviticus 17 may be the reason sexual contact was forbidden during menstruation and thus was regarded as a taboo. This woman, or this, excuse me, this law benefited the woman who has her lowest estrogen level during menstruation. If the husband, and with very wise pastoral counsel, Dr. Rooker says, if the husband was insensitive to his wife's state during menstruation, difficulties may develop. <laughs> you understand? So what, and I'm, I'm not trying to be humorous here, but let's just be honest. God here is having compassion upon the woman during an enormously difficult time. He's teaching the man to have some serious restraint, which is a message our nation could stand to hear. And I suppose he's having compassion on the man as well. So that he does not create enormous marital conflict during this time. And so, make fun of the Bible all you want to. God's rather compassionate. Uh, I, I will say to you, those who did not agree in... Uh, in Israel with these laws were always free to leave. They were not obligated to stay. They could leave Israel. So these laws reflect God's compassion and His Lordship. Now I want to conclude with a few thoughts, and I've only placed one on the PowerPoint presentation, but I have two more to add. Number one, let me recommend that you doubt your doubts before you doubt the Word of God. God's Word has earned the trust and respect that God demands of it. The Bible is worthy of caution and restraint and respect. If there are challenges in the biblical text and you ask questions and have doubts, first direct your doubts in question to your own doubts in question. The Bible has earned this. Now I need to say something with a little bit of sting. God has earned, and His Word has earned, this consideration, we have not. Our Word is not nearly as reliable, trustworthy, and as informed as the Word of God. The second thing, learn to read a book. Learn to read a book. I have right here, 
a copy of American Indian Myths and Legends. And I have opened it up to about the same place that if this were a Bible, I would find Leviticus. And I'm going to begin reading to you about the way some people read the Bibles, even the critics. Why, my younger brother, you think of everything. Forthwith he gave the people bows and spears. Younger brother, are you satisfied now? Oh, no, not at all. There's only one language. And you can't fight somebody who speaks your language. I don't know. That happens around here all the time. There should be enmity. There should be war. Well, what are wars good for? Oh, my respected elder brother, sometimes you're just not thinking. War is a good thing. Say you're a young warrior. You paint yourself with vermilion. You wear a fine war shirt. You start. You sing war songs. You have war honors. You look at the good-looking young girls. You look at the young women whose husbands have no war honors. You go on the war path. You steal the enemy's horses. You steal his women and maidens. Uh, you are rich. You have gifts to give away. Does anyone understand what I'm reading here? What if you were to read a book, this one or the Bible, the way we should read books? How about starting at the beginning and getting the context and the flavor and the tone and reading through? Now, if you don't do that, you may get very confused when you get to the Psalms. Did you know that the Psalms say especially in Psalms 14.1 and Psalms 53.1. Those two Psalms, those two verses in Psalms, actually say there is no God. Psalms 14.1, I'm quoting directly. There is no God. Psalms 53.1, in case you missed it the first time, it says it again. There is no God. Now, now look at you. You're looking at me like I don't know the Bible. Look at the text. Let's just look at Psalms 14.1 for a moment. Psalms 14.1. Read the second line with me, would you? What's the second line say? There is no God. See, I told you. Now what mistake am I making? I am yanking it out of context. And that is precisely what our critics have done with Leviticus. The first part of Psalms 14.1, like 53.1, is what? The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Learn to read a book. Number, two, number three, none of this is easy. The Christian faith is not easy. It begins with the miracle of creation and is unapologetic for it. Straightforward, blunt, blatant, clear. The New Testament begins with the miracle of the virgin birth. Blunt, blatant, clear. No pulling back. No trembling. No nervousness. No stuttering in the voice of chapter 1 of Matthew. Virgin birth. The Bible ends with apocalyptic literature and visions. You know, if I was to write up the Christian faith and create it myself... And if my ancestors had created the Christian faith, we would have made it a whole lot easier. We would have removed the objectionable parts and maybe just kept love your neighbors yourself and pray for one another, those kinds of things. But God puts parts in here that are miraculous and tough and difficult because He is the Lord and He tells the world, now deal with it. This is who I am. And if your heart is humble, you'll get it. If not, you'll break yourself as if stumbling over a stone and you'll be crushed to pieces, he warns. 
None of it is easy. If it were easy, it would be clear it came from us humans and that we or the church invented it. Because it is not easy, I think it's rather clear it came from God. And so we, we need to make a choice today between our ways or the Lord's ways. God has set up a way to be made right with Him through the blood of His Son. And though you may struggle with some of the laws in the Old Testament, the truth is you do not have to struggle with this. Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Set aside your questions and doubts for a moment and surrender to Jesus Christ and trust His cross alone. And then you're made right with God. Stand with me, please, real quickly, and let's pray. Father, we want to thank you that your word is like an anvil. It hammers away difficulty. In fact, Lord, the hammers of doubt and skepticism have been leveled against it. and They're all worn out and useless, and the anvil is still strong. And I want to pray that today, by your Spirit, that you would intervene in souls today that they may trust your immovable promises and that friends today would set aside pride and anger and rebellion and take Jesus Christ as Master and Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. As we sing, we're going to ask you to come and meet a staff person. Share your spiritual need and we'll be glad to help you meet Christ. Walk with Him. Renew your life. Do God's will. There's no magic to walk in the aisle, but this is your time we won't be here forever. It's time to respond, and you come. Tim, lead us, please. Lord, I come. I confess. Are we?